Welcome back y'all to season five of In The Wild. I am super excited to be back with y'all and we have a very special guest. So now that we're back on campus, partying and getting your social life together is a hot topic or wild topic as you like to say. And we have a very special guest to kind of help us, I guess, be a little bit more socially responsible. He is an associate professor for the Medical College of Georgia, and he is the director of the Addiction Medicine Fellowship Program. So give a warm jack or welcome to Dr. Marshall Better. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Yes, thank you for being here. I know uh, it's a busy time of year, so we really appreciate your time. Um, diving right in, how did you get into this specialty? Well, my primary specialty was anesthesiology, but uh, very quickly I became interested in pain and I became double-boarded in pain medicine. And then I realized doing pain medicine that if you don't know about addiction, you got problems. And mm. it's difficult in dealing with people who are on controlled substances. So it came really out of you know the pain clinic and then evolved into you know, addiction in general. And here I am, I'm still doing pain, but also addiction for Augusta University at MCG. Uh, can you explain a little bit why partying and substance use among college students can be so risky and have significant dangers to their health? Well, unfortunately, probably 30% of students have signs of alcohol abuse. Oh, wow. 80% have abused. And mainly, as you know, in colleges, it's um, binge drinking. And so they'll go to, they'll study, they'll be good during the week. Weekend comes, go crazy, and they all drink. <laughs> And what is binge drinking? Well, if you look at what a normal people would drink, whoever they are, uh, for a woman it's about three drinks a day maximum, and a man about four drinks a day, but usually not over 12 to 14, uh, again, 14 for the man, 12 for the woman, a week. That would be, if you were approaching those levels, it would be risky behavior. But in um, universities, they come some are right out of high school, and they don't have parental control uh, or, or even access, and they have new friends and they want to fit in, and everyone's going to the bar, so they go to the bar, and they haven't really drank much now if they're of age, and things can get out of, out of control. If there's lax um, ID uh, checks going on, they're more likely to drink. And of course, what happens when you, oh, when you drink too much? You lose control. And if you lose control, you can do risky things. You can do things that put you in danger, such as you may get pregnant, such as you may drive drunk. What happens? You get a DUI. That's not going to be very good for your future, especially if you want to go into law or medicine and you get a DUI or you injure someone or kill someone. So we have to, I think, have a buddy system, is what I think. So when you're in the Navy, as I was, you always had a battle buddy, right? And that's if you're going out, you have a friend, someone you trust that can make sure that you're safe and get home and that your friend gets is safe and gets home. And you look after each other so you don't get out of control. We also know that people tend, not tend, can put things in your drink mm. to take advantage of you. And you, you don't know about that. And so that's a danger. But again, you have your friend with you and, you know, they can intervene for you. So... There's a lot of 
issues. And it's not just going out and partying, but it's also studying for exams. And maybe, oh, my friend's got some Adderall because they're losing weight and they've got a prescription. And now you're taking Adderall to stay awake. And that can lead to a lot of problems as well. It can lead to polysubstance use as well. So there, it's not just the drinking. Drinking is the number one problem. But uh, right behind it is cannabis, and then mm. behind that is is uh, the amphetamine-type drugs that uh, people use for studying and often come from diet pills that they get per prescription. Yeah, I remember my freshman year, someone uh, actually offered me Adderall, and I was like, I don't, <laughs> even, know, I don't even know what this is. Uh, but they were like, oh, it'll help you study, like, it'll help you, uh, study better if you need to focus. And I was like, um... Okay. Yeah. Why are we or why are we trying to take medicine to to help study? But that was a very I guess and can still be a very popular It's very popular. And and it can be deadly too. You can get arrhythmias from it, meaning your heart can, you know, skip beats and, and alcohol and excessive alcohol can do that as well. You combine them. Not a, not a very good thing at all. Um, the other thing I I like to warn folks about kids about young adults about is cannabis. It's not what grandma smoked. <laughs> you know, uh, it used to be 4 or 5%. Now it's 25%. And, oh, if wow. you, and if you get any of the, uh, like the butters or the shatters or the, the edible stuff, it can go up to 85%. And that's why in Colorado, when they looked at the year after, actually they did five years after, uh, of legalization of, of uh, cannabis in Colorado, the um, rate of admission to the emergency room for psychotic episodes was through the roof. Oh, wow. It was five times, actually. And um, that's because the potency can give you anxiety and even a psychotic kind of effect. So it's not an innocuous drug at all. And you don't know. We have no idea of what the potency is or what it is. Or is it laced with fentanyl oh, yeah. or cocaine, you know? So there's everything out there. They're here in a wonderful school for a wonderful future. Let's get there. Let's be smart about it. What are some of the other like effects to someone's mental health from excessive alcohol or drug abuse? Well, I mean, there can be a, it depends on how excessive, of course. Uh, if you do this not too frequently, it may not affect you that much, but it can affect your memory. Certainly, memory goes along with studying, goes along with exams, and so your, your grades will deteriorate and you may wash out because things don't work out too well. Um, you know, alcohol can affect your liver, of course, uh, as well as your brain, and in fact, many other body systems. People who drink a lot tend to get uh, high blood pressure. They can get atrial fibrillation even. Um, it can lead to infections because your resistance goes down, your immunity goes down. Not to mention just plain old getting drunk, you're going to fall down and break something. Mm. And, and that is very common too. So it's a lot of, lot of issues with uh, any substance that alters your normal um, sort of sen sensorium. What are some, I guess, signs that we can look for to kind of for, to help, I guess, identify or indicate an addiction problem? Well, and it, you know, what you're going to see is your friend, let's say, isn't coming to class or is coming late all the time or doesn't get their assignments done or, you know, that type of thing. You're going to notice a change in behavior. 
and uh, if you've known them before or if you get to know them and things change. So you've got to look for that type of thing. At work, we'd see a lot of absenteeism or a lot of sick call, things of that nature. Oh, I'm sick. I can't come in today. Mm. Or for drug use, they're leaving all the time in between to go do whatever drug they're using. So all of a sudden, where's John? You know, he's not here. He's always out in the parking lot. We, and you'll see this. You know, I've got to get something in my car. He's always got to get something out of his car. Those types of things you, you want to take a you know, look at. Also, if someone's coming in, their eyes are always injected maybe, or they're just not looking good. They're, they start um, forgetting about their, their, uh, the way they look, they're, you know, and they don't dress appropriately. They don't wash as much because they're just absorbed with taking medications. Mm. You can see all these behaviors beginning. They might even start exhibiting some bizarre behavior if it depends on the drug they're taking. So what would you recommend to, I guess, different colleges, universities, faculty, and staff to kind of be mindful and just help prevent these issues from happening? Well, I guess uh, doing things like we're doing today is a great start. Uh, having, a, a, you know, flyers or whatever go out from the uh, health clinics, student health, employee health, uh, so that they know that there's access. Now we've got a, we've got a great website, and they do uh, put these types of information out there. And uh, students should know that if they look on the websites, they're going to find this type of information. They may not need it. I hope they don't need it, but they may need it for a friend. And so as we encourage, and I certainly encourage the, the webcasts and the podcasts, and you know whatever things you can do to spread the word that we're aware of the issues. We have help for them, and we want to prevent them from getting to that, that stage altogether. Uh, so switching gears a little bit, uh, as a professor, how do you go about teaching and training students on this stuff? <laughs> well, we teach them and train them as we do in any chronic disease, which is what addiction really is. Um, you know, there's all stages, and sometimes we catch someone very early on, which is we would rather do that, or maybe they're just at risk at this point. And so, you know, you always have to, when you interact with the patient, uh, ask these questions. And, and we teach them not to be afraid to ask these questions because that will save their lives potentially or their careers. And so we teach by training on people who unfortunately have this problem. Just as you would do rounds on cardiology patients, we could do rounds on patients who are in, addict, you know, in for overdose or in for behavioral issues because of chemical dependency, substance use disorder. And uh, you know, in the fellowship program, we have four different sites that we go to. So there's one site at Augusta University, the main hospital, and on the um, we psychiatry, we're part of the Department of Psychiatry. Uh, but you don't have to be a, a psychiatry resident to go into addiction medicine. To go into addiction medicine, you just need to have finished a residency in one of the approved uh, residencies, okay? ACGME approved residencies. And then they do that extra year in addiction medicine. So one rotation is in the consultation service. So people coming in uh, through the emergency room, people on the floor. And so you're going around and you're seeing all these folks. That's one. The other one is at Hope House, which is a wonderful place where women and children go and, and really to maintain sobriety, achieve sobriety, and either uh, keep their children or, because of court order, avoid prison time. And then there's the VA where I work as well, 
and we have two rotations there, one more mental health uh, and the other one in for pain because pain, there's an intersection between pain and addiction. They have to know that. Very important these days with all the prescription medications that we have. So by going to these various locations, seeing different populations, you know, the women's population higher in amphetamine use, the VA probably higher in alcohol use, and then more acute people off the street at, at, through the ER, probably more heroin and things of that nature. They get to see the whole ball of wax, everything that's being used and actually coming in through the street, and, you know, and that's how we train them, real life. As a physician, what is that experience like for you to kind of help someone through recovery and maintain their sobriety? Well, you know, there are many ways to save a life. And when I was way back in the day doing anesthesia and you intubate someone and you save them from they weren't breathing and then an operation goes on, that's one way. But we do the same thing, but we don't intubate them. <laughs> we talk to them, we get to know them, and we help them. We help them to engage in the process of sobriety, to understand there is hope and help, and there's now medication-assisted treatment. In the past, they had none of this. We have medications such as Suboxone, or Naltrexone, or Acamprosate, or Disulfiram, many medications that can help decrease craving and also make it safer as they continue their journey in sobriety. So it's become a very scientific process, as well as using you know the behavioral uh, aspects as well, and can be and is so gratifying. Uh, you have some visual aids here. Oh yes, I would love for you to kind of walk me through what you what you brought. Well, first we'll look at you, and this might be <laughs> your brain on drugs in the nineteen. 70s or 80s. Okay. And we used to use this slide. I had this slide in all my slide decks, not PowerPoint. We didn't have PowerPoint. We had slides. And this is very popular. This was a way to try and get um, men, you know, all these students, ooh, get, you know, sort of shock them a bit. This is horrible. But, but we've become more sophisticated. And we actually know that this is your brain on drugs. We now we can, these are. This happens to be pictures of radioactive cocaine showing binding sites in the brain. Oh wow! But we can do uh, functional MRIs. We can do PET scans. We can see changes in the brain from someone who has a normal brain to someone who has an amphetamine uh, addicted brain, and then even when they recover, and there are rec there's recovery. Of, of brain tissue. You can lose gray matter. You can get changes in receptor fields. So we see this, and it is a disease. We can look at it just as we look at heart function. Uh, when they do radionucleotide scans for, for cardiac, they can see how, how the heart functions. We can also see, we don't use this on a regular basis, but we now have the understanding so much more than we ever did to understand this is a brain disease, it's a chronic disease, and if someone has a true addiction, they have it, and they have to deal with it for life. And so just though, as a patient with bad asthma or COPD will be on an inhaler for life, someone with an addiction may be on Suboxone for life. Um, the recidivism rate is very much similar to someone, let's say, a diabetic who doesn't take their insulin regularly, or someone who gets a a bad bout of, uh, you know, bronchospasm, and maybe they miss their, their medications. Pretty much similar, like any other chronic disease. 
So we deal with it such as that. There should no, be no more stigmata uh, if you're a substance use disorder patient than if you're a chronic heart failure patient, really. But society, of course, has other problems. Um, speaking of other problems, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about some other things that are affecting the sure. state of Georgia. My pleasure. We are soulful, legendary in our own right, and undeniably funky, home to an experience like no other, and nestled on the warm banks of the mighty Savannah River. Augusta is calling you. Welcome to a place of charm and opportunity customized experience. Here we build, think, grow, and forge. Augusta University, an experience like no other. Welcome back, y'all. Here with me is Dr. Marshall Better, uh, and we are kind of continuing our conversation about addictive medicine. Uh, and one thing that has been affecting not only, I guess, our area, but throughout the state of Georgia is the opioid op epidemic. Uh, could you provide a little overview about this crisis in Georgia and how it is in fact, uh, impacting our communities? Well, of course, this is a, a national problem, uh, not just a local problem, but it sure does impact our, our community. And we're at a more at-risk community, uh, <clears throat> less providers, certainly less addiction providers, a little more poverty, uh, economic issues. And so the whole 18 counties of the CSRA is, is a sort of under-developed under, uh, area for the addiction treatment. And so that's why we actually were able to obtain a HRSA grant um, uh, three years ago, which enabled us to stand up this Addiction Medicine Fellowship Program. And we're doing our bit by training four fellows, four doctors in addiction medicine every year and many of them stay here. We, we hired our chief fellow from last year, awesome. and she works with me full-time, Dr. Jasmine Shell, and she works full-time at uh, the VA doing addiction medicine. And uh, so that's been very, very uh, helpful. But the problem is that we're, we're now at over 110,000 deaths a year, hmm. and 2,000 deaths a year in the state of Georgia. And so, it's a real problem. And those are opioid deaths, never mind alcohol deaths and other deaths, and, and never mind the motor vehicle accidents and the trauma, falling downstairs, falling off buildings, and the suicides. Uh, it, it's a litany of problems, and it's a huge social problem, it's a huge cost problem, the medical uh, you know, stressors on the system. So it's a real problem, and, and it comes from many factors. It can come from people getting prescription medications, but that's not the big problem now. The majority of the deaths come from synthetic drugs, mainly fentanyl. And what happens? Every, if you go to the street and say, I want a pain pill, or someone says, hey, I've got some pain pills here, maybe you want to take one, or let's go to a party here, take this pain pill. Every pain pill on the street, unless you take it from granny, is fentanyl. It's from South America, and they're mushed together and put in very crude pill presses and no quality control. How much fentanyl went to the pill A and how much went into pill B? No way of knowing. Oh, wow. You may get the pill that has all the fentanyl and you're dead. 
You may get the pill that has a little bit of fentanyl, and you think, oh, this is pretty good, I might try it again. So the danger is that even if you are taking, let's say, illicit drugs, you still don't know what you're getting. And that is what's killing you. They're lacing um, cannabis and other medications with it too to make it more potent and more addictive. You, if you're more addictive and you like it, you're going to go back and buy this medication from him or her, whoever. So it's a major problem. And uh, of course, the, the death toll speaks for itself. But the saddest thing, or where there's a, a good student uh, doing well, lives at home, he goes to a party and someone gives him this pill, and all of a sudden they're dead. Or the other thing, of course, is you take the pill, but you're drinking as well, two depressants, and then boom. And this is what happened to all the movie stars, and they, they drop because they have some pills on board, they drink, and you don't know when it's going to happen, you just stop breathing because it suppresses breathing. It suppresses a lot of function. And that's why everyone's getting Narcan, nasal Narcan. Narcan can reverse the effects of opioids, but the opioids are getting so strong that we used to have to use one, but now you can use up to eight. So they even made oh, wow. a stronger Narcan, double the strength, because of these synthetic fentanyls we're seeing. And it's even getting worse. That's terrifying. Yes, it is terrifying, and it's real. Um, so I guess just diving deeper, how does it more so intersect with college campuses and college students? They're going to see it mainly in the partying. And, and I'll tell you some silly things that happen, such as they may have heard of a thing called a farming party. We think farming as in pharma, P-H-A-R. Oh. So everyone brings a, a bottle of pills from their moms or aunties or their uh, medicine cabinet, and they empty it into a bowl. They mix it up, and everyone who comes in takes a handful. Well, that's Russian roulette. But it happens. I mean, this does happen. I didn't make this up. And so that's bad. So if you go to one of those parties, don't take the candies out of the bowl. <laughs> that's number one. Number two, you know, it's a weekend. It's stressful. You're studying hard. So I can understand that kids want to relax. Anyone wants to relax but everything in moderation. You should drink in moderation, but drugs shouldn't really play a role because you do not know what you're getting. There is no quality control. It's just out the window. And we're not even talking about getting to injectable drugs where, of course, you get abscesses and endocarditis and strokes and, and speed. Can, you can get amphetamines and uh, cocaine. Absolutely. Strokes and arrhythmias. And the arrhythmias can stop your heart. And boom. So we're talking about serious side effects from these medications. And so they have to be wary when they go to the big parties because someone wants to sell you something. That's how they make money, to often feed their own habit. So just, you know, be careful. Be careful out there, <laughs> as they say in that TV show. Uh, so I guess going off of that, what would you recommend for students who are eager to just, you know, experience their social life or start this new chapter? Well, I think they're very lucky here in Augusta. We have a wonderful performing arts hall. They can really see a variety of really interesting things. We have a great music scene in Augusta, and there's bands that come in all the time. We have a great art, art scene. Uh, there's little galleries popping up, even on Broad Street. Um, great musicals, 
we have two very fine performing arts, uh, the Miller Theater downtown and the Imperial, and uh, they're renovating um, James Brown uh, oh, yeah. Arena. So, you know, there's a lot of other great things to do in Augusta, not to mention the natural beauty and going out. But, I mean, if you want activity and nightlife, it's here. And and that's what, that's what I grew up with, you know, great music. And sure, you'd go and have a few drinks. But, again, you go with your friends, uh, you look out for each other, and there should be no problem with that. Uh, what role does, like, stigma and stereotypes kind of play into maybe hindering the access of someone wanting to get treatment for being addicted to something? Well, I think there's still a misunderstanding of, of addiction and, and a fear of addiction. But, you know, for the first, uh, this is the second, third year now, they have me teaching two classes to their first-year medical students within the first month. That never happened. I never had one lecture on addiction when I went to university. But here, they understand you got to get it early. Let them help them understand about those things. So everyone gets, at least in medical school, they, they're getting these lectures. So that's a wonderful thing. Um, and I guess for those who maybe are, maybe aren't struggling with uh, addiction or just having uh, or overusing those uh, drugs, how do they, or what would be the best way for them to seek help? Would you recommend? Well, again, I think there's some great information and helplines and, and numbers on the websites. If you were to go and Google it, you'd find a number of sites in town. But there's student health is always the best place to go. You can always ask one of your professors or instructors that you feel that you can approach. Um, probably friends know. It's, they're not hiding this anymore. <laughs> there are lots of resources. You just have to Either you or your friend or your family have to reach out. I also encourage them to talk to their families and don't isolate from them. They want only the best. And I think when they understand and they talk to a medical professional, it's not that you're bad. It's that this thing may have occurred. Look, it could be just circumstantial. You know, uh, drug use can, because it's available, you start it. Does that mean you have some psychiatric problem? No. It could be a social pressure thing. We do know that addiction has a very strong component of uh, genetics behind it. About 50% of people have a genetic issue with it, the ones who are you know, suffering from substance use disorder because they had a first-degree relative, father, mother, maybe grandmother, who grandfather, who had, a, let's say, an alcohol problem or whatever. And so that's a component, but it doesn't just happen, you have to have access, well, they're away from parental interference. So that's, you know, so access available, they go, the bars are, are open or they have fake ID or they have friends who get them drink. So it's all, and then maybe they're stressed and there's a reason for it, so they, they go looking for something. So there's many things that sort of combine to get someone on the wrong track, but there are ways to ask for help. A lot of of uh, hotlines, and they'll see on the JAG. I'm sure tons of tons of options, right? Yeah. Um, another question that I had was, how does I guess because we see that uh, there are users of all ages, right? So how does one I guess get started or have an interest to try an illicit drug when 
they hear about the dangers, they know that they probably shouldn't be doing it. How does how okay. does that process start? Well, there are certain at-risk at people. And so let's say you have an upbringing where maybe you don't have a father in the family or maybe your mother didn't nurture you. And that's one of the biggest things we have. So, so some people are unfortunately destined to have some issues because of psychological or, or and or even psychiatric issues. And so they may be more predisposed to say, you know, I just I'm depressed, have a horrible life, you know, and screw my parents and, and I'm going to, yeah, cannabis, I'm going to try some. And then from cannabis, the guy selling you cannabis has some pills. Next thing you know, he's giving you some pills. And after that, it can get even worse. And that's often a common thing that we see. But mainly it's peer pressure. Mm. Oh, you go ahead. It's just a little acid. You can try it. We're all doing it tonight. You're going to be the only one not. Ooh, they're not going to like me. I'm going to be not cool. Don't, don't give in to that pressure because it can, it can really hurt you. Mm. And that does make sense. Um, do you have any other thoughts on how, I guess, students can uh, be more responsible or kind of just stay away from things that they may know well, are harmful? <laughs> I think they should respect them, themselves more and uh, understand why they're here. Just think about it. Why am, why am I doing this journey through university and, and beyond to waste it, potentially, my life and even end my life by doing an illicit drug. I think if people just think about it before doing it, it's like, don't send that email till you read it again. Ah, yeah. Same thing. <laughs> don't do that drug till you think about it again. Ah, where did this come from? Maybe I shouldn't take this. Psst, throw it away. Um, and I think they may not understand. We, we really care ab about these people called students who are at our university. They may not think so, but it's true. Uh, and it's painful for us to lose someone you know just we feel we've failed so and they should also think about their parents and their loved ones and what what would they do if they lost them I mean that would be you know again think twice that's what I'd say I uh, appreciate your insights and before we let you go when we come back we have a fun game for you can't wait <laughs> <laughs> all right we're back with dr. Marshall better and now I'm going to put you in the hot seat just a little bit with a little myth busting, a uh, fun game called Fact or Fiction you have in your hand here, a little handheld. Uh, so I'm going to read you some true or false questions, and I want you to give us uh, your take on First, it. First, I should inform our listeners and our viewers that I'm doing this under protest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, first up. Uh, fact or fiction, it's safe to mix alcohol with energy drinks because the stimulants in energy drinks counteract the depressant effects of alcohol. That's a question on the exam. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, you got to be very careful with that because, again, there can be uh, stimulants in there that could even give you arrhythmias as well. And um, it's, a, it's, a fa it's, a, it's also a fiction because... You're gonna, you may potentially drink more because you don't feel as drunk. Oh, yeah. And that's a danger. Uh, next up, binge drinking is only harmful if it happens regularly. Occasional episodes of heavy drinking are relatively harmless. Fiction. Fiction, because you could kill yourself, that big binge. Ooh, that's scary. Uh, next up, drinking coffee or taking a cold shower can sober someone up quickly and make them fit to drive after consuming a lot of alcohol. 
If, I want two signs for that one. <laughs> that Double fiction. You basically uh, metabolize your alcohol. If you want a good rule of thumb, one normal drink, that's one and whatever, half ounces, per hour. So if you had three drinks, you better not drive for at least four hours. One drink, four hours. Well, no, no. If you had three drinks. <laughs> one, it, you, your body metabolizes one drink, one normal-sized drink okay. per hour. So that's one beer or one shot per hour. So that's a general rule. It takes an hour to gotcha. metabolize that. Um, using prescription medicine that isn't prescribed to you is safe as long as you know the recommended dosage. Fiction. Never take <laughs> anyone else's medication because you don't know the side effects and if there could be any interaction with you may be on. So far, all fiction. A lot yes. of insights. Yeah. Um, it's okay to leave someone who appears highly intoxicated alone to sleep even if they're not showing signs of distress. That's a fiction because they may vomit and and uh, have a respiratory arrest, whereas if you were there to watch and put them on their side, uh, they would be safe and, and wouldn't have any harmful effect. Uh, next up, the effect of alcohol and drugs can vary greatly depending on body weight, so smaller individuals can safely consume larger amounts. <laughs> That's backwards. <laughs> no, uh, and especially women, uh, the gender as well as things. Women do not uh, metabolize alcohol as fast as men, and uh, different uh, distribution of volume also, so that's wrong. Uh, eating a heavy meal before drinking alcohol can prevent intoxication and reduce the risk of alcohol poisoning. Well, I hate to tell you again, it, <laughs> it will delay the onset, but you will eventually get drunk and have all the issues that you have, but it does delay it. Okay, so you'll feel it eventually. Yes. <laughs> Uh, the use of illicit drugs at parties is unlikely to result in addiction or long-term health consequences if done only recreationally. Well, I hate to hold this. I'm, I want, I, my favorite color is blue, but I'm doing green. <laughs> you don't know what you're taking. Even the first time, if you get the wrong fentanyl pill, unfortunately, that could result in death. You could take cocaine and you get an arrhythmia and you collapse on the floor and there's no one to resuscitate you. So, no, not true. Uh, alcohol is a bad way to s choose to stay warm in cold weather because it increases your body temperature. Correct. You're going to dissipate. Yes. And so in, in the cold, if you're like up in Alaska and you say, I'm going to take some alcohol, the exact worst thing to do. Oh, wow. Vasodilation, you lose heat. Okay. So technically that one was, I guess, It's fact? a bad way. You said a bad way. Yeah. Alcohol is a bad oh, way. Oh, yeah. Bad way. Sorry about that, folks. Okay. Fact. Bad okay, way. so bad we got way. one. One fact. One fact so far. It is a bad way. Yes, bad way. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's all of them. I was skipping around trying to see if I could throw you off a little bit, but yeah. Well, I guess I, I guess I've trained my fellows right. <laughs> <laughs> you passed. They thank passed. You. We all passed, and they did. <laughs> so thank you so much, Dr. Better, for being here. I'm sure everyone, including myself, uh, listening, were super educated today. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it very much.